This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. We're discussing UFC Fight Night, Barbosa versus Gaethje, where Justin Gaethje just beat Edson Barbosa by knockout in the first round. So what the hell happened? And before this fight study, Paul and I had already decided I'd be analyzing Edson Barbosa, and Paul would get Justin Gaethje. And really, I think we both wanted Gaethje, not because we don't like Barbosa. I'm a huge fan of Barbosa but because neither one of us could really see Barboza winning this fight. So, Barboza is notoriously bad against pressure fighters. He has a susceptible chin, and not only gets easily cornered against the fence, he's also easy to hurt against the fence. Well, all of Gaethje's strengths are Barboza's weaknesses. Paul will get into this further, I'm sure. But stylistically, it looked to me like it would be Justin Gaethje versus James Vick all over again. So even on Facebook and on the Southpaw Discord channel, I asked people, how does Barbosa win? Maybe I was missing something. But in asking this question out loud, it really forced me to think about it. Barbosa isn't a great puncher, but he is one hell of a kicker. And he does have some answers while backing up. He has the switch kick, the wheel kick, and the back kick against opponents who walk him down. But he lacks good footwork after that. Rather than angling or being fleet of foot, he side shuffles away, squared up with no defense. Someone online asked me if Barbosa is a good boxer. Even in the UFC, not really. There are much better boxers. And with such small gloves, you really have to hit hard than just earn points with punches. Barbosa also doesn't have great defense while punching, and he doesn't punch particularly hard, but he will throw combinations and go for body shots, for better or worse. So that's another problem. After he kicks, if he's stuck there, he doesn't have enough sound boxing to continue the attack afterwards or to use boxing to get himself out of there. But somewhere in there, and being now with the American top team, we're pretty good at getting fighters to wrestle, to jab, and to use more footwork, maybe Barbosa would surprise me. And what I realized listening to his interview is, Barbosa is an MMA fighter who really identifies himself as a Muay Thai specialist. He's someone who wants to prove he is the best striker in his division. Kind of like how Ben Askren wants to prove he is the best wrestler in the UFC. Now, everyone knows Gaethje, the wrestler, loves leg kicks. But who cares, right? That's his thing. And in the fight, Barbosa immediately eats a couple, and it seemed like he needed to prove he was the better leg kicker. So the first five shots landed for both fighters were just leg kicks, not including a couple of leg kick attempts. It turned into a leg kick war. But Barbosa's best shot at winning this fight was from an in and out, out fighting range. But he was sliding into mid range because he needed to prove he was better than Gaethje at striking. But he was starting to play into Gaethje's hands. 
Barbosa would kick back every time he got kicked in the leg, which can be good, but Barbosa's attacks were becoming too predictable. And against Gaethje's consistent pressure, rather than any of those kicks I mentioned previously or being fleet of foot, he stood his ground against an oncoming Gaethje to throw a left hook to the body. It's a classic Barbosa punch combo, a left to the body, then to the head, followed by a right over the top. But you don't want to get into a firefight with Gaethje, especially in close range, especially when you're the one who has a 5-inch reach advantage. And while throwing his combination, he started getting uppercutted like crazy by Gaethje, which rocked Barbosa. And of course, Barbosa runs himself backwards into the cage and gets caught in a firefight. But Barbosa does something slick here by slipping against Gaethje's right, then shuffling away, but not away from the fence, just away from Gaethje. And that's the problem with this side shuffle. He just follows the perimeter of the fence. So Gaethje follows Barbosa. But for Barbosa's part, he tries to time a knee against Gaethje and they end up in a clinch, which actually was initiated by Gaethje, which actually helped Barbosa because Barbosa needed time to recover. Because not only was he rocked, but he was also eye-gouged by Gaethje, who was palming his face to punch. So there's a couple cheap things Gaethje does in his fights, but he doesn't get warned for it because it happens in the chaos. One of those being, he palms the face of his opponents, which often pokes them in the eye. He also lowers his head and headbutts opponents while they're crashing into each other. But in the firefight, neither the opponent nor the referee, nor the fans probably know what happened. Even though Barbosa was already rocked, he decided to stand his ground and get into a firefight with Gaethje again. He needed to prove he was the better striker. But if he was at least able to use his knees, his kicks, head movement, and angling, and maintain the fight in the center of the octagon, it would be one solution to him walking himself back against the fence. But instead, while in the firefight, he was still walking backwards while punching until he was once again against the fence. And like I said, Barbosa's not a great puncher and he's even worse while backing up. Now, against the fence, he does classic Barbosa, which is, like I said, he side shuffles away to reset his feet. And that's another thing about him. He jogs or side shuffles until he could set his feet again back into fighting stance because he can't maintain a stance while evading. He's either in stance attacking or he's completely out of stance while evading, abandoning his ability to attack or defend. Alexander Gustafsson does this also, but for Gustafsson, it's not the only thing he does defensively. And this is in the weaker light heavyweight division. Barbosa mostly relies on this and it's in one of the most stacked divisions, lightweight. So Barbosa shuffles away from Gaethje like he did previously when he was rocked, but still no further away from the fence, shuffling the perimeter of the octagon. Then Barbosa plants down to fire a shot, and this becomes a pattern. Barbosa plants down to fire a shot, then he shuffles, plants, shuffles, and it's like, how long do you think you're going to be able to get away with this? It's too predictable. Like fighting leg kicks with leg kicks. Like always throwing a combination, starting with a left hook to the body. And eventually... Barbosa shuffled away to his left with no defense, like usual, right into Justin Gaethje's overhand right, similar to what Michael Bisping did against Dan Henderson or James Vick versus Justin Gaethje. Now, 
Could it have gone differently? Yes. Barbosa has such a nice switch kick. So we know he can switch stances. So why not some stance switching from Barbosa? And if he doesn't feel comfortable with angling out or slipping or weaving, then what about some more classical Muay Thai defense? He has so much leg dexterity. So what about some side kicks with his lead leg? Some push kicks and teeps? Or some more attacks with his lead leg in general? And more variety from his rear leg? Not just roundhouse kicks and wheel kicks, but other attacks, especially those that impede your opponent's forward movements. And how about some more feints? And, maybe like Donald Cerrone, even at this late stage of his game, maybe he could start including some takedowns and submission attempts, especially against pressure. Also, the addition of a sharp jab would do wonders defensively. Just end your combinations with a jab, or jab away from the pressure. You don't have to just use the jab to find range or to set up another punch. You can use it to create distance again. So you can use it to find distance, and you could also use it to create distance. But Barbosa is basically a developed fighter. So he's not going to make huge changes to his game, but there are still minor improvements he can add onto his pre-existing game to keep himself competitive, especially against the rest of the 155 division. When it comes to Barbosa, I would think that he could seek advice from Eddie Alvarez, a former teammate who has beaten Justin, as well as Dustin Poirier, a current teammate who has also beaten Justin. Both used a very smart but different game plan when it came to beating Justin. Eddie would make sure that he went high, low, high with his combination punching to make sure that he saps out that reserve tank of Justin. Dustin, on the other hand, elected a similar strategy to what the Diaz brothers might do, where he would throw volume strikes, multiple jabs, but sneak in power shots in between to make Justin always guess and be on the defensive. Now, just as you said, I realize Edson is more of a kicker than a boxer and his punches are never going to be as strong. But James Vick gave Justin a lot of trouble in their fight in the first minute when he kept Justin at range with front kicks, with side kicks. But Edson didn't seem interested in engaging in that battle, despite some of the blueprint already being out there. So it's a little frustrating because Edson has the tools, but he hasn't shown the necessary strategic acumen in order to pull this off, which is always sad to see when you know a fighter is outmatched and outgunned, you hope and pray and root for them to pull it off, even though you can't see a path for them. With Edson, it's frustrating because you do see a path if they do this, if they do that, but they just elected not to do it or they can't seem to do it. Being at American Top Team, and like you said, he has Dustin Poirier, he's friends with Eddie Alvarez. So you have to assume the way he got caught in that firefight, that couldn't have been the game plan. Perhaps Edson's habits and maybe ego got the better of him. But with that said, there's a lot of good things Justin Gaethje did, and perhaps even some improvements on his part, or maybe it was just a good stylistic matchup. So give us the case of Justin Gaethje. So looking at Justin's career as a whole briefly, as well as his traditional style and his improvements, it's important to note that despite only having now five fights in the UFC, he was two and two in the UFC coming into this fight. But it doesn't mean he's been any less exciting. He has either won in devastating fashion or gone out on his shield. 
he definitely lives up to his nickname, the highlight. He has a record of 19-2, and now 20-2, and with only two victories by way of decision. The rest are all finishes by strike, except for a rare submission win by Rear Naked Choke in 2012. Now, Justin Gaethje, Cody Garbrandt, and Aaron Pico all reside on the same spectrum of fighters who have great wrestling but elect not to use it, sometimes to their extreme detriment. Although he used takedowns sparingly in World Series of Fighting, he hasn't used them lately in his quest to become the most exciting lightweight in the UFC. Justin fights out of the orthodox stance, but he might as well be standing right in front of you. Much like Nate Diaz against Conor McGregor, Gaethje opts to keep his hands high and get in close, pressuring you to back up and throw strikes at his forehead and forearms. This is similar to the typical swarmers that you see in boxing, such as Triple G, Julio Cesar Chavez, Joe Frazier, and Marcos Maidana. However, unlike most of the boxers I mentioned, Justin will rely exclusively on his chin to hold up so that he can get in close and swing in with hooks, uppercuts, and low kicks, usually thrown as a counter when the opponents are off balance from punching him. Once he's able to get close enough to you, he will initiate a clinch battle where he can hammer you with strikes and push you against a fence where you have no escape. He did this brilliantly against Michael Johnson where he would force him to fight against his stiff arm and hurt him with strikes from the clinch while trying to evade getting grabbed even further. Now, although he is at risk from getting low kicked himself, his pressure usually has opponents constantly backing up as we saw in the Edson fight. And it's hard to throw successful low kicks when you're forced to move backwards. The low line, teep, and front kicks would do wonders, the latter being used by James Vick before he got absolutely clobbered by the right. Against Dustin Poirier, Eddie Alvarez, and Michael Johnson, Gaethje has been relentless forward pressure with low kicks constantly thrown, even if it means he eats jabs, straights, and uppercuts on the way in. Now, he does a good job of using head movement in the first round to avoid as much damage as possible, but over time, you see this fade and the Justin of World Series of Fighting reemerges. I will compare his leg kicks to what Peter Arts used to do to fighters in K1 and how he earned his nickname, the Dutch Lumberjack. Over time, the leg kicks will kill your in and out movement, tire out your pivots, and essentially keep you in place so that Justin can swarm in and hurt you with punches. He would actually be much more successful if he adopted the same approach as Ernesto Hust, who threw low kicks as part of a combination set or at the end of his combinations to make sure that his opponents won't recklessly lunge in. Against Dustin, those right low kicks were clearly hurting him, but Dustin's constant use of doubling and tripling up on his jab and focus on uppercuts to the body meant that Justin was getting tired as well. Whenever Justin threw his leg kicks as a counter, they were doing wonders. When he threw them with little setup, he was eating punches. In fact, the most damaging blows against him are when he's on one foot after he's thrown the kicks. Now, this was also a problem against Michael Johnson and Eddie Alvarez as well. Gaethje has a decent chin despite all the wear and tear, but fatigue makes cowards of us all. Eddie took advantage of this by going high-low with punches to the head, body, and then work punches to the head, body, and then head again to constantly keep Justin working. Now, Justin would benefit by timing his kicks for maximum impact, such as limiting it to counters or after he's thrown a combination. Now, heading into this fight, it was good to see that even though Justin has traditionally been nonstop action, his last fight against James Vick showed a different approach. Justin started out very tentatively by fainting, moving in and out to pressure Vick, and threw body jabs to get Vick thinking about covering up his midsection. 
He showed some great feints against Dustin and Eddie as well, but it was too few and far between despite having success with them. This might have also been because James Vick is 6'3 and his reach is absurd among lightweights. He was also having trouble with Vick's front kicks, which is where I thought Edson would have the most success. But Gaethje was able to get James Vick to constantly move in circle so he wouldn't have time to set up those kicks. When he stayed on the open, Justin ate a decent number of body kicks, which was also a troubling development going in against Barboza. But he doesn't hang out back for too long. Now, if Justin would adapt a similar style to George Foreman and Daniel Cormier where the arms are outreached, he might have more success where he could check the hands and go for clinches. And Sam, as you've noted, he's had success with it against Michael Johnson, against Eddie, and even against Edson. He's also less susceptible to taking strikes on a constant basis since opponents don't want to risk getting in too close and getting into a clinch. The fight itself showed Edson and Justin trading low kicks, especially with Justin aiming for the calves and Edson returning fire. They do this for about a minute and Justin doesn't seem to fear the punches from Edson that may come when he's on one foot. Justin clinches Edson against the fence early to make him work and tire him out from a safer space. I thought this was a good strategy, and you could see some of the work that Trevor Whitman had to put in to make sure after now all those fights, he finally gets him to listen. He starts throwing punches to the thighs to keep active and make sure Edson's aware that that's another area he has to protect, all while mixing up short punches to the head and body. Now, Justin minimizes the damage taken by constantly putting his head on Edson's chin making him work, and never giving him a chance to get comfortable. This is a staple of American Kickboxing Academy and the war master himself, Josh Barnett. Initially, Justin was getting a bit wild on the exits and threw hooks recklessly. And I thought it was a sign that Justin of World Series of Fighting is still in there. Now, out in the open, Edson hurt Justin with hooks and uppercuts too, putting him on shaky legs and making him pay for hanging out and trying to simply time the shots instead of fainting. However, Justin doesn't mind that kind of fight and will happily exchange on the pocket. And it's a skill set he knows he can fall back on if the fight gets tough. Whenever Edson hurt Justin and they started exchanging, Justin hits him back hard with hard counterhooks and uppercuts, and this makes Edson back up. In a display of career growth and fight IQ, Justin will hang back when he knows Edson isn't running on empty. And a right overhand does it and the fight's over. Justin times a punch just as Edson backs up and moves to the left, right into Justin's power strike. To set this up, Justin faked a kick to overhand right, which hit Edson and caused him to back up. With the cage to his right side, Edson moves to his left and right into the trap that Justin had set up. Now, ring and cage awareness is absolutely crucial at the highest level. And as you mentioned, Sam, this hasn't always been Edson's strong suit. A less-than-perfect exit has cost Edson dearly, similar to how Stipe got caught against DC. Sam, did you see anything in Justin Gaethje's fight that I might have missed? Actually, he wasn't as bad in this fight, but an interesting stat about Justin Gaethje is he has the worst strike defense in the UFC. So it'll be interesting if the worst defensive fighter in the UFC can ever become champion. And also, I wonder if Justin Gaethje is aware of that, and if he's trying to improve that, or his coach Trevor Whitman is trying to improve that. Because being a fighter who takes so many strikes is going to start to accumulate. So even if he builds a winning streak, he's also building up damage. And the question is, can he keep that winning streak alive to become champion 
before his body completely gives out. I don't know. But one thing I did notice in this fight was Gaethje did start fainting for some takedowns, which was actually messing up Barbosa. And there was even one point where he shot in for a double leg. So that was kind of cool and surprising. It was nice to see him putting wrestling back into the mix and just to see some feints in general. It'll definitely help his striking as well. Now moving on, Demetrius Johnson and Eddie Alvarez both just recently had their one championship debuts. One thing I was curious about with UFC fighters going to one was how would these UFC fighters look without weight cuts against naturally sized fighters for the division? And both Demetrius Johnson and Eddie Alvarez look pretty small to me. What were your thoughts about that, Paul? I like the fact that 1FC has a different style of enforcing weight cutting, especially by making sure that the fighters aren't dehydrated. But seeing both Demetrius Johnson's opponent and Eddie Alvarez's opponent stack up side by side, I thought they were different weight class fighters. I haven't seen Eddie that outsized since he fought Nick Thompson back in Bodoc fights where he was at welterweight. And same thing with Demetrius Johnson. His opponent, Yuya, looked gigantic and he was able to shuck off a lot of Demetrius Johnson's takedowns as well as getting back up and just sometimes just powering through. So for those of you guys who don't know, one championship has an interesting weight cutting rule where they do hydration tests. Basically, you have to pee and they look at the hydration in your urine. And if you're dehydrated, then you can't fight. So you can't dehydrate yourself to get to the weight division you want. It kind of forces you to fight at your natural weight. But I think what happened here was because of this rule, you're going to have a lot of fighters who are just naturally big framed for their weight rather than very muscular guys cut down. So I think counterintuitively, a lot of the UFC fighters might end up fighting guys who are bigger than them. Or sometimes they'll get the luck of the draw the other way. They'll fight somebody very small. But we've all seen this, right? You're one weight. This other guy is the same weight as you, but they look way bigger than you because they naturally have a bigger frame. Whereas in the UFC, you might have small frame guys who just like to carry a lot of weight cutting down. So frame-wise, they're not that big for their division. They just have a lot more muscle. So it's a difference in looking at people who have bigger skeletal frames versus guys who have smaller skeletal frames, but who tend to carry more muscle. Another factor I was interested in was Western fighters or fighters from the U.S. having to acclimate to the time change of being in Asia and not the other way around. So usually, and Asian fighters have complained about this also, the way their tickets are booked, they have to fly here. And they don't have a lot of time to acclimate to the time change. So they've complained that they're never really fighting at their best. Whereas in Asia, because they don't have to go through all that time change and they're fighting from home, they are fighting at their best. So this was interesting to see the Western fighter maybe not fighting at their best because of the time change and how good Asian fighters are if they're actually fighting at home. Maybe in the UFC, we never got to see the Asian fighters fighting at their best. So if you didn't read the results or catch the fight, Demetrius Johnson submitted his opponent, Yuya Wakamatsu, with a guillotine choke in round two. As for Eddie Alvarez, 
he got TKO'd by Timofey Nastyukin in round one. So, Paul, what do you think went wrong for Eddie Alvarez in his debut? Eddie has been notoriously described as a slow starter and against a naturally what appears to be a bigger fighter who happens to be a power striker. It was a recipe for disaster. And given that Eddie has a pretty good wrestling background, I thought he might hang out back, see what his opponents can offer. But he did one of those two things. He hung out back. He kind of saw what he had to offer, but didn't offer as much in the way of defense. Now, traditionally, he might have thought, well, I could take most of these shots. I've taken it against the best in the UFC. But against a guy who he might have underestimated, frankly, because he thought, this is one. I'm just going to run through it, and I'm going to be the champion in another division, cementing myself as the underground king and as a guy who's beaten all champions from all different organizations. And another thing that I was worried about with Eddie coming into this fight was people talk about the octagon jitters, but it goes both ways. If you're a fighter debuting in another promotion, sometimes it doesn't go all that well. Ben Henderson lost his Bellator debut against Andre Korshikov in a similar scenario where he was vastly outsized by his opponent. And Rory McDonald barely eked by a decision against Douglas Lima in his Bellator debut. So just because you come from the UFC doesn't mean that it's always going to be easier on the other side, especially if you're anything short of a middleweight where there's talented fighters at the lower weight classes across all promotions. Yeah, especially lower weight classes in the East. Also, I couldn't find data on this, but didn't the circular cage of one look bigger than the octagon? Because even if it's same length from one end to the other, because it is a circle, it'll end up being more square footage. But I think it might even still be just bigger. It could also be that not only is it bigger, but because it's a circle instead of an octagon, they don't have the traditional corners where you might be able to fall back and pivot off of. It's just a circle, so where are you going to go? Yeah, and if it's anything like the Bellator cage, Bellator's biggest cage is bigger than UFC's biggest cage. And that's another thing UFC fighters have to acclimate to, the cage size and the lack of multiple corners. Now, you had already alluded to this, but it does seem like Eddie Alvarez has just taken too much damage in his career, and he can't rely on that durability anymore to get him out of that first round. And also, this has been plaguing him in his last several fights. He's really having a hard time getting in on his opponent. He keeps getting caught on the way in. This happened against Connor. This happened against Dustin Poirier twice. This happened previously against Donald Cowboy Cerrone. And this also happened against his newest opponent, Timofey Nasdukin. Every time Alvarez tried to get into range to box, he got cracked. So it seems like fighters and their camps are figuring out, okay, this is how you beat Eddie Alvarez. Now, going back to Demetrius Johnson, you had already talked about how much bigger his opponent, Yuya Wakamasu, was and how much he was able to get away with just strength and explosiveness. But like Eddie Alvarez, Demetrius was also getting cracked on his way in. He was doing a lot of the stuff he does well, shifting, changing stances. But Wakamasu was getting a good read on his distancing. And right when Demetrius was in range, he was catching Demetrius. And at one point, 
He even wobbled Demetrius. What was your take of the fight? The last time I saw Demetrius outsized and outgunned like this was when he was at bantamweight against Dominic Cruz. And perhaps when an opponent is that much bigger, even if you time your takedowns correctly, and even if you hurt them with strikes, they're able to absorb it, get a read, and not panic. And I think the biggest thing opponents have always feared against Demetrius Johnson is that they can't see things coming and they're getting hit harder than they'd like. But perhaps Yuya saw that, got hit, and didn't panic. He thought, oh, this is it. I can easily take some more if it means I'm going to give some back to Demetrius. And even when Demetrius took him down, the fact that he realized, at least in round one, hey, he can't hold me down. I'm just going to get back up. Some were technical get-ups and others were just, I'm just going to stand up. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, even though Demetrius submitted him, he was never able to hold him down. So even with the guillotine choke at the end, it was because Wakamatsu was getting up. But there was no point where Demetrius could hold him down for any long period of time. And in this fight, in the striking range, Demetrius was forced to wrestle because he was losing the striking battle. But that's the great thing about Mighty Mouse. He has such a huge tool set that he'll take the fight where it needs to go so that he can win. But maybe a lot of this was jitters and rather than seeing a classic Demetrius Johnson, maybe next time we'll see Demetrius making improvements beyond what he was in the UFC. Because that's the thing we got used to in the UFC. It wasn't that he was UFC level and maintaining it. He was always improving as a UFC fighter. With that said, that's all, folks. Goodbye.